What's up, everybody? My name is Jordan. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, man, major shout out to Gina, doing amazing work with all of our events. Uh, one of the things that has probably been the most exciting but also the most difficult is regathering, not just on Sunday morning with the service, but also as a community as we are back in these streets just a little bit. So please, uh, it really does us uh, a huge service. If you, uh, to the extent of your ability, make sure you're following up on the emails and registering for the stuff uh, in good timing. So welcome to everybody online. Shout out to everybody who is here in the building. Uh, I want to pray for us before we get into today's message. Uh, God, our Father, I am uh, never more aware of my inadequacies than when I have the amazing privilege to stand and proclaim your word. Father, I pray that I would be a recipient of this moment hearing your word and that we would be on a journey together hearing from you and you alone. We ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So in um, 2018, uh, University of Yale or Yale University, I didn't go to Ivy League, I think that's abundantly clear right now, uh, had introduced a new class, Psychology 157, entitled Psychology and the Good Life. Very quickly, they realized that this class was a hit. Immediately and almost overnight, it became the most popular class in the history of Yale in its 319 years. It was so popular, in fact, that at one point, one in every four Yale students was taking this class. Uh, and the university was pulling fellows from other schools to help it staff it. Now, psychology in the good life let us know on some, something that I think we all know universally to be true, that people want to be happy. Now, one of the biggest crimes, I think, about the way we understand Christianity and the way I used to understand it was that there were two different ways you can live. You can live a happy life or you could live a Christian life. I used to think that to follow God, to give my life all to him, not just like certain parts, but to give my life all to God would mean abandoning my happiness. Now, long before the University of Yale rolled out the psychology of a good life, Scripture has been telling people how you can, in fact, find true happiness, true blessedness, how we can, in fact, have the good life. Now, I want to read us uh, Psalm 1. And uh, this summer, when I'm, when I'm teaching, uh, I'm going to be going through different psalms, those that really have spoken to me over the years. And today we're starting out with Psalm 1. And Psalm 1 is uh, a set of instructions on how we can have the good life. Now, one thing that's really interesting about Psalm 1 is that psalm, the psalms are a book of prayers. Oftentimes, God's people over the years would sing these psalms together as worship songs. They would be singing their prayers. But Psalm 1 is the, the first psalm in a book of prayers, but Psalm 1 is not a prayer. In many ways, Psalm 1 is a set of instructions for us. So let me stop describing it and just read it for you. It says, how happy, or some translations say blessed, how happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stand in a pathway of sinners or sit in the company of mockers. Instead, his delight or her delight is in the Lord's instruction or the law of the Lord and he or she meditates on it day and night. They are like a tree planted behind, beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in its season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he or she does prospers. The wicked, they are not like this. Instead, they are like the chaff that the wind blows away. 
Therefore, the wicked will not stand up in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the ruin, the way of the wicked leads to ruin. Now, a lot of times when you turn to any page in scripture, you'll see words like we just read in Psalm 1, where it says, how happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked. And other translations translate it to blessed. And English translations sometimes struggle to encapsulate a biblical principle in one word. Now, the word that is used here in the text is much more than a casual and flippant happiness. I'm happy when there's no line in Popeye's for the two-piece spicy. (laughs) What the Bible is describing here is not that level of happiness. It's talking about something much deeper and much more durable than a flippant happiness. It talks about happiness or this blessedness, and I would define it as a deep and durable delight. It's deep. It's not something that is on the surface. It's durable in that it can withstand different circumstances, and it is a real true delight that is lasting in our lives. Now, it's really important that we get to know this because I I don't want us misunderstanding what the authors are aiming for. God is after your happiness, but not in the way that you and I might think it it to be. So number one, I think uh, the happiness that the author is talking about here in Psalm 1 uh, does not matter what circumstance you're in. And we know this because in verse three it says, it bears fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. So, you know, normally in New York City, we have four seasons. Spring lasts like seven days, but we have uh, a number of seasons in New York City we get to experience. Fall is my personal favorite because I, I don't sweat like um, buckets of sweat walking down the street. Um, but in the wintertime, you know that fall is starting to really hit its, its high point and winter is coming because the leaves start to wither and they fade away. Now, it's very natural that circumstances uh, of actual seasons will cause differences in our actual trees. But when the author says that the leaf does not wither, what they are hinting to is that in every single season of life, in the fall, the winter, the spring, and the summer, its leaf does not wither. This is an evergreen tree that despite the circumstances that are going on around it, its leaf does not wither. Now, this is a principle not just found here in Psalm 1, but it's found all throughout the scripture. Uh, Over the last 20 years as a Christian, one of the most important things I think that we need to develop as people is real resiliency, real fortitude, that is a result of this real happiness, this blessedness that the authors are trying to communicate to us. And I think this is one of the things that was true about the earliest Christians. And I think what made the earliest Christianity so compelling, that these were people that could withstand and endure difficulties. The letter of 1 Peter, a man named Peter writes to people going through persecution, and he says this, you rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials. Now, other translations, instead of using the word grief, they'll say heaviness, and what Peter is saying is this, there is a deep distress and heaviness, but he also simultaneously saying you're rejoicing in this. Now, it does not say you used to rejoice before the hard times hit, and now you're miserable. And it also doesn't say that you're rejoicing because you're just pretending the hard times aren't hard. He's not saying that. He's saying that there is a true 
happiness, blessedness, a joy that exists in the heart of those who have placed their faith in God, in Christ, that can withstand every single circumstance. Now, what Peter is talking about and what the psalmist is talking about is a happiness that is not circumstantial. And that is one of my hopes of renaissance for us as a people that we would develop what the Bible is hoping for us to get that would transcend circumstances. Now, another thing about um, uh, happiness and, and blessedness that the writer is talking about that I, I want us to get before we really dig into the text is that happiness is never something you can aim for. If you aim for happiness, you will never get it. Happiness and blessedness always comes as a byproduct of looking for something else. When you would see Jesus teach uh, his sermons, oftentimes Jesus would, ne- Jesus would never say, blessed is he who hungers and thirsts after blessedness. He says, blessed is he or she that hungers and thirsts after righteousness. That if you aim for righteousness, you'll get blessedness in the process. But if you aim for just happiness, you'll get neither. Now, I know this to be true in so many different areas and arenas of life. Uh, marriage is one of those, for example. If you just want a happy marriage and that's all you do is aim for a happy marriage, you're not going to have it. Because what's going to inevitably happen is you're not going to have the difficult conversations that you need to have. You'll suppress everything that's going on around you and sometimes suppress stuff internally because you just want to keep the peace. And what's happening? In so many different ways, there are thousands of micro-fractures that are taking place every single day because in the pursuit of happiness, of avoiding difficult conversations, of vulnerability, in that pursuit, what you're doing is you're actually sowing discord and seeds of corruption in your marriage that eventually, like a bridge, it's all going to come crashing down. But if you were searching for and reaching for grace and vulnerability and forgiveness in your marriage, you would get happiness as a result. Same thing is true for our jobs. If you're just looking to be happy at work, then you you might end up cutting a bunch of corners that should have never been cut. Because every single day, if your goal is, I just want to be happy at work, then you're not going to develop the fortitude to stick to it. Uh, Really, what God would have us do, instead of just seeking for happiness in our work, is to seek purpose. To seek to be the person that sets the tone, the atmosphere in the entire office, instead of just looking for happiness. Because if we look for happiness, in and of itself, we'll never find it. Happiness, blessedness that the author wants us to have is always a byproduct of something else. So I want to go back to the scripture a little bit. Matter of fact, I want to give us a a little bit of a caveat first. Uh, I was wrestling today and this morning when I was praying through this topic uh, because I, I know I've done this before, so if I'm the only person who's done this, then please forgive me. I'm just talking to myself right now. There have been so many periods in my life where I was using God as a means to an end. Believing in my mind that God was not happiness. So sometimes I know when we talk about this conversation that God wants you to have a blessed life or God wants you to have true happiness, our ears perk up like, finally, we're going to finally get something because deep down inside, we are believing that God himself is not happiness. That if we were to have the fullness of God himself and nothing else, that means we would not be truly happy. And that God is being used in so many different ways as as a means to an end and not an end itself. Now, everything in Scripture, all of the canon of Scripture is pointing towards a reunification of us and God. And that is the good news of the gospel. Not that you get things, not that you get joy, but that we get God. 
Forgiveness, for example, is one of those things. Forgiveness is an amazing concept all throughout the pages of Scripture, but forgiveness in and of itself is just a means to an end. All forgiveness does is say you can go and excuses us for our wrongs. What God in his amazing love for us does is he invites us in. Forgiveness is a means to an end so that we can be reunited with God, not just so that we can walk away unpunished. So the goodness of the gospel is not just that God wants you to have happiness. He wants us to have a fullness in life that is rooted and centered in him that cannot be found in chasing for a thing, cannot be, and it, does, it is, is not disturbed in any circumstance in life, but it is a deep and durable delight that God wants us to have. So if we were to search through the pages and the words of this psalm, uh, it's interesting that this psalm starts off with a negative, right? So it says, how happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stand in a pathway with sinners or sit in the company of, of mockers. It's almost as if the psalmist is letting us know from the outset what not to do. So number one, he says, um, uh, blessed is he or happy is he is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked. Now, I've been doing a lot of research on this and thinking about the, the poetic language that the author is using. Now, oftentimes, Jewish authors and certainly writers of the Psalms would use and employ poetic language to express and convey biblical and profound truths. And what, what is a writer trying to tell us in communicating these things? He gives us three things, um, and it, it is a progression. So he says, first he says, to not walk in the advice of the wicked. And this is about our minds. It talks about listening to the advice of the ungodly, which basically uh, and completely changes our, our intellect, the way we think about a given situation. So it starts off in our mind, and then it moves on to, uh, nor stands in the pathway with sinners. Now, this is talking about your living. Our thoughts, in so many different ways, are seeds of conduct. What you think will impact your behavior. So number one, it starts off with not walking in the advice of the wicked with our minds, listening to their counsel. Number two, it says, don't stand in the pathway with sinners, our behavior. And number three, it says to not sit in the company of mockers. And this is how we, how we see ourselves. Now, one theologian said it like this, that in Semitic language, in ancient language, where you sit is where you belong. I remember uh, being in college and walking into the cafeteria, um, or the refac, as it was called at Morgan State, and everybody sat with who they belonged with. You had the engineering nerds sitting in the corner. You had the football team sitting over here. They didn't take a shower. Uh, you had everybody kind of sitting with their different people. The New Yorkers sat with the New Yorkers. The PG cats and the DC people sat with themselves. The Baltimore people had their own table. People sat with who they belonged to. And what the author is saying is something that is profound. It's, he's saying that life is this progression that starts in our minds, moves to our behavior, and then it affects our behavior, um, or I'll say it like this. It's a progression that starts with our minds and the way and the things that we pay attention to. And those thoughts are seeds of conduct, of conduct that grow into our behavior. And eventually, here's the scariest part. Eventually, we will become what we practice. In every scenario in your life, you and I will become 
what we practice. It starts off with just some thoughts, then it moves to our behavior, and eventually we will become what we practice. Now, I was thinking about this a lot this morning. Why does an author of Psalms, of this Psalm specifically, think that God's people are susceptible to drifting in this way? Like, why does he start the Psalms with this? The first words of a Psalm are a warning to not drift in this direction. And why does he do that? I think he knows something about the human condition that is always susceptible to drifting away. And by extension, that same thing is true about you and I, that we are not immune to it. We all sometimes entertain this false belief, and this false belief is this. I can take what I want and leave behind what I want and still be happy. That the ultimate arbiter of truth and righteousness and goodness is me. And I can come to God's word and I can take what I want and I can leave what I want, but I'll still be happy. Now, that's a, a huge warning, a dire warning for us all to pay attention to today uh, because it does lead to certainly just one direction. Now, Scripture in so many different ways goes against the grain. And I think if you are a follower of Jesus or you aspire to be a follower of Jesus, Scripture will completely and uh, totally ask you or command you to go 100% against your feelings. One of these things I know to be true about me, and it might also be true about you, is something called gentleness. Gentleness sounds good. It sounds like a great Christian platitude that sounds good when the, when the scenario feels okay. Like, I can be gentle to people who I really love when they kind of make a little bit of a mistake. But Scripture doesn't say to do that. Scripture says in Philippians 4 and 5, it says, Let your graciousness or gentleness be known to everyone. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. Now, our culture is so marked by harsh words and trying to shame people and clapping back that we have moved in this progression in our minds from just listening to the counsel of our culture that says, yo, you're not the one. You're not going to let nobody talk crazy to you, to where we start to entertain these thoughts. And then eventually we start to practice these things. And before you know it, it has shaped what you are, and now you belong to that. We're sitting now in these seats that we have become what we are, have been practicing. Now, I, I know I'm not immune. This is not me preaching at you. This is me preaching to myself right here. I have certainly done this. Uh, it's a crazy uh, song that came out last year by Tobey Anigwe. It says, don't try me, try Jesus. <laughs> Y'all seen those t-shirts, I'm saved, but I still got hands? <laughs> we think it's almost a virtue that we're not the one. You can talk crazy to somebody else, but I am not the one. Because we believe that we can take a little bit of what Jesus says in the scripture and we can leave the parts that we don't want. And what that leads us to is never happiness. It is never the place, the blessed life that God is calling us to live. It actually leads to destruction. Now, a quick word about gentleness. Gentleness is not weakness. Gentleness is not pretending that things are not a problem when they are a problem. Gentleness is God's strength in your life under control. It means that you are using the least amount of force necessary to accomplish a godly goal. Sometimes that actually means real serious confrontation. But in that real serious confrontation, you have decided to use the least amount of force necessary 
to accomplish that godly goal. Because the strength, of you, that the strength that God has given you, if it's not under control, it is a dangerous thing. I remember when I was about 16, I got my uh, driver's license. I don't know if they do this everywhere. I had my junior license, so you couldn't drive like past 9 p.m. And um, I <laughs> was trying my best to like entertain and impress all my friends with how good of a driver I was. And this is like when the first Fast and Furious movie came out. What are they up to now? Like Fast and Furious 72 or something like that. And, you know, people would get to the red light and you would just like punch the gas. You do something called a neutral drop. So you put it in neutral, you slam on the gas. And when the light turns green, you put it in gear and it just kicks the tires out. And you could not have told me I was not Vin Diesel when I was doing that. So I got, you know, I did it a couple times and it worked. You know, I got the, the looks of my friends and everybody thought that, or well, I thought I was cool at least. Um, and I kind of thought it was sweet. One day I was doing it and I was at a red light that was at the top of a hill. Shouldn't be a problem. And it was raining. Also, warning sign number two. I did a neutral drop, you know, kicked the tires out. Next thing I know, I got a little scared. Then I slammed on the brakes. Mistake number three. So going down the hill, having the tires skidding, slamming on the brakes, and I ran over a fire hydrant. Yes. That was my mother's reaction. Oh, man. My father's reaction was quite different. Um, uh, he was not very happy, uh, <laughs> to say the very least. But what is true about a, a dumb 16-year-old trying to impress his friends is also true of the way you talk to people, the way you talk about people. Your strength that is not under control is a dangerous thing. To give a 16-year-old, if I were making laws, I would not let boys drive until they were 38. <laughs> 37 maybe, like if you took some defensive driving classes, because young boys are, are, are stupid. Um, because they just don't know how to rein it in. Too much testosterone is coursing through our veins and we just don't know how to bring it in. And that strength that I had of that car that was not under control was so dangerous, I could have killed, I could have killed people. James talks about our, fire, our tongue, they are like a fire. They can set the whole world ablaze. So many Christians have used your tongues to light fires in people's lives. You have unleashed a strength on someone that is not under control, and you thought in the moment that you were going to be happy by clapping back or by saying something. And let me ask you a question. When, have, when you have wor used words that were way too harsh and you knew it, did it lead you to a place where you felt more settled and more blessed in the end? Even if you saw that person crushed, did it lead you to feel better or more blessed or more happy? Of course not. There is still this glimmer of God's image inside of us that sees when we destroy somebody else that it's not a good thing. It might feel good for 10 or 15 minutes, but eventually we see the destruction of those words. What the author is calling us to do is to say, to take the whole counsel of God, if we're going to find the happiness that God wants us to have, to take it all and to not walk in the advice of the wicked, to not stand in the pathway of sinners, to not sit in the seat of the scornful, to not let these negative seeds impact our behavior, which will change what we become, but rather to take in what God tells us. And then in the end of that, we will truly find happiness. Now, we can go down a long list of different things that we can think about in our life and our culture, uh, but another big one that I was thinking about this morning is just this thing called confession. Bible says, confess your faults to one another so that you may be healed. 
I've heard so many reports of so many community groups and DNA groups where people live in the kiddie pool of their own lives. They never actually share what's going on in their lives. They never have any real prayer requests beyond my uncle's bursitis. And it's because they believe that they can take part of the scripture and leave the other part that calls them, that calls you to actually live in a rhythm of confession of your sin and that in the end you will still be happy. And that never works. The same thing is true for the way we see generosity, sexual purity, forgiveness. The, long, the list is extremely long with our lives. We think this ridiculous delusion that we can accept the parts of the Bible that we want to accept, leave the other parts that we don't want to accept, and in the end, we will find happiness. And here's what the scripture writer says in Psalm 1 and verse 6, it says, for the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked, it leads to ruin. You think it's fun, you think it's good, you think it's okay that you just, that you have resolved to never forgive that person. Let me tell you something, the way of the wicked, it leads to ruin. So the author of the psalm tells us to do something else instead of that. He says, instead, his delight is in the law of the Lord or in the Lord's, or in the Lord's instruction. And he meditates on it day and night. He or she is like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. Whatever he or she does is prosper. Now, when the, the writer here is talking about uh, that they are, their delight is in the law of the Lord or the Lord's instruction, I've seen a lot of commentators say, you know, when the writer is talking about the law of the Lord, it's not talking about what you should do and what you shouldn't do. It's not law in that sense, but rather the entire set, God's entire canon for our lives, God's fatherly instruction to lead us and to guide us and to find delight in that. Now, one of the things that we are called to do with this, uh, the, the writer basically says, is he meditates on it day and night. Now, this writer is not saying that you quit your job and you spend your entire day, all day, every single day, meditating on something, but it does talk about us having something on the inside of us that we commonly and frequently go back to so that we can um, be shaped by God's words in our life. Uh, the word meditate is like in some ways uh, the opposite of what we think about in our modern day. In our modern day, we're mostly influenced by Eastern meditation that says you need to empty your mind. This is not that. This is filling your mind with God's words. And meditating is almost like mumbling over it. When you just day and night, you're mumbling, you're, 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 going, you're rehearsing, you're speaking, you're reading over and over and over again these words over your life. And by this practice in your life, it says it's going to bring a blessedness to you. I was going through a difficult time, um, as many of us were going through in the beginning of the pandemic. And um, I would write down a scripture and just put it in my wallet. And every time I went to pay for something or every time I was, you know, instead of going and doom scrolling on Twitter for like an hour and feeling worse about my life, I would just pull out the scripture from my wallet and I would meditate on it. Therefore, we do not give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary and light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but what is, on, what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, 
But what is unseen is eternal. Throughout my days, I would just go through this and I still go through it day by day. And it is something that has profoundly shaped the way I see my day, the way I experience my day. I am more blessed. I am more happy when I am meditating on this. Even when the realities of my life are difficult, having God's word shaping my life, not just on Sunday, not just on Sunday. Y'all, can we talk about it a little bit, just for a couple of seconds? I have two sons, three and six, and my six-year-old now is at the age where he's tall enough, he has enough resources that if he comes to me, he's just six, if he comes to me and says, Daddy, you know, I, don't, I haven't eaten anything all day, I'd be like, there's like stuff well within your reach that you can get. Go get some goldfish and leave me alone. <laughs> My three-year-old certainly needs more assistance in getting food and things for him. But imagine they weren't three and six. Imagine they were 13 and 16. And my 16-year-old comes to me and says, Dad, I haven't eaten all week. As a father, what should, be, what should, what should my response be? Should it be, oh, man, I'm so sorry. Let me go ahead and, and make you some egos. There's food right there. At some point in life, we need to move on from constantly being fed to being able to eat for ourselves. Uh, there is a drought in American Christianity, and it is not about Sunday morning. The Sunday morning production level, the amount of time spent into preaching great sermons, that is all well and, and good. And, I, and we, do, uh, we work really hard to produce meaningful services at Renaissance, and we'll never stop doing that. However, our hope is to produce a people who know how to eat, who know how to go to the cupboard and to feast for themselves. And um, certainly, if you're new to church, you're new to Christianity, and you're still pronouncing Malachi, Malachi, we got plenty of stuff. <laughs> for you. We, are, uh, we would love nothing more than to meet you exactly where you are. And I certainly remember so much in my life where I didn't know, I didn't know which way was up. And I think that's completely appropriate. But there are some people who have been rocking with Jesus for a long time, and you're still saying you need someone else to feed you. Scripture is calling us, pushing us to be a people who know how to rightly divide God's word for themselves. So you would not be dependent on a Sunday to Sunday sermon. If the sermon is great, then you're high. If the sermon is whack, then you're low. That we need this for our survival, but rather the blessed person is one who meditates, who knows how to read God's word for, for themselves. And whatever he does prospers. Now, one of the things I know to be true about scripture um, is that we develop an appetite for it by reading it. Isn't that strange how that happens in life? Uh, there's some things that you will never develop an appetite for it unless you and until you actually do it. I'm really proud of our kids director here, Tanya Villardo. Um, she already has it off on her calendar that she is going to be out the weekend in November for the New York City Marathon. And um, yes, Tanya is an amazing uh, member, team member. And talking to Tanya is really fascinating because growing up, she would not have seen herself to be a runner until one day she started running. And oddly, she developed an appetite for running, not by reading Runner's Digest, not by talking to other runners, but by running. Now, that's not my story. Y'all have seen pictures of me running. <laughs> but for all of us, for sure, we will develop an appetite for God's word by reading God's word. And this is what the author of the psalm is calling us to. Now, coming up in the fall, we got about a month and change, you're going to start hearing about announcements for DNA groups that we have at Renaissance. And DNA groups will be about an eight to 10 week period where we will be in small groups of people 
rehearsing God's word, going through scripture together, and you're going to find reasons why your fall calendar is going to be busy, even though we have like nine different time slots available. There's going to be reasons why, you know, in your mind, you don't want to do it this time or you've done something already. But, but I just want to ask us to all really, truly, seriously consider how can you have the blessed life in, that God wants you to have if you're not constantly immersed in Scripture? And our DNA groups are a phenomenal way that we rehearse God, God's words together. We put them into practice in our, in our life. And once you start to hear those announcements for DNA groups relaunching, I want you to run to the registration and to do that. Now, one of the things that a lot of commentators have pointed out about the psalm is that none of us could ever say that we have actually done that, right? In so many different ways, we are not the person who has always meditated on, on Scripture day and night. In fact, we are the opposite. We are the person who has wandered. We are like the chaff that blows away, and our hope really should never be in our behavior and our ability to always be this person in Psalm 1. But in some ways, Psalm 1 points to the one who always was meditating on Scripture day and night. There's one uh, author who said that Jesus in his life and his teachings, 10% of everything Jesus said was quoting Scripture. In all of his conversations, in the highest heights of his life, he was quoting Scripture. On the cross, in his lowest lows, he was quoting Scripture. That Jesus is the one who was planted. He is the tree whose leaf never withers. He is the one that is truly this tree planted by water. And Jesus in John 15 tells us that we are to be connected to him. And our hope is not that we could be the tree because we're not the tree. Our hope is to be the branch connected to the tree. And Jesus gives us this invitation. I want to pray for us that we would receive it this week. Uh, Heavenly Father, I am uh, always humbled whenever I think about myself in the context of the commands that you give us. And uh, I see the glaring inconsistencies in my own life. But Father, I'm heartened to know that my confidence is not in me in my steadfastness, but it is in you and your steadfastness on my behalf. So Jesus, this week I want to, I pray that I and others under the sound of my voice would receive your invitation to be connected to you, that we would be the branches that abide in you. Help us to do that this week. God, quiet the noise around us so we can hear your voice. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.